This is the Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with new and archive interviews from the Probabilities and Bookwaves Artwaves programs on KPFA-FM and Pacifica Syndication. Barry Lopez, who died on December 25, 2020, at the age of 75, was a master of the short form, both fiction and nonfiction. His nonfiction, collected in such books as Arctic Dreams and his last published work, Horizon, and his fiction in collections such as Light Action in the Caribbean, focused on exploration, biology, morality, transcendence, politics, philosophy, and much more. In this interview recorded on June 11, 2004, while he was on tour for Resistance, which is a collection of interrelated short stories with the theme of resistance, he discusses how he came to write the book and then moves on to discussing what, in 2004, was the unnamed threat of totalitarianism. While the interview was conducted during the Bush administration, it's not hard to project ahead with what Barry Lopez is saying to the current crisis point with the would-be dictator poised to become the Republican nominee for president. He speaks of the inattentiveness of the masses as well, which also has great resonance today. My guest is Barry Lopez, author of such books as Arctic Dreams. Latest book is Resistance, which is a collection of short stories, vignettes, in a sense, a small novel. Each story in itself is kind of a testimonial, but not quite a story, yet it's something else. In retrospect, sometimes I think you'd like to look back on work you did and say that you were inventing something new. But I think most writers have the same experience that I do, which is that you just do your work. And then when it's over, you realize that in order to do the work, you perhaps you tried something that, you know, a little bit unusual. But I'm not trying to actively invent anything. What I wanted to do was tell a story, and this was the only way I could tell the story, which is uh, to take a group of people, nine people, who all knew each other in the 60s when they were undergraduates at, at Yale, and uh, then scattered around the world and led their lives, and many of them you know, came very close to crash and burn in their personal lives. But they remained, uh, even if it was by a slender thread, they maintained an allegiance with these ideals that they had in the mid-60s, which you can guess were excited by their opposition to Vietnam War, perhaps. And then much later in life, uh, in contemporary time, the time we're living in now, they run afoul of a right-wing American government where there are individuals that want to take these people who are historians and writers and uh, an architect and shut them down and claim that their work is a threat to democracy. Well, as you said, it, it could have been a novel, but that didn't seem the form. It seemed too unwieldy because I had so many people. I wanted to provide enough of a cast, if you will, so that a reader could say, well, I feel a reverberation of myself in this character. Uh, so I had to develop these characters a little bit. And so the book works with one of them saying, here's the letter I got in the mail. I couldn't believe it. And then you know that everybody else got that letter and then you're reading their responses to that letter, which is their lifelong act of resistance becomes action. The U.S. is not specifically named. And in fact, you go out of your way to say the Office of Inland Security rather than Homeland Security. Yes. Why? Well, 
You know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that I'm not going out so far on a limb to say that many people have very large questions about, if you will, what the hell is going on in this country. And we all phrase those questions in different ways, but there's a general sense that there's a menace here and we can't name it. And for lack of a better word, let's say that it's the threat of totalitarianism. And a curious thing about totalitarian regimes is that when we look back on them, we say, why couldn't those people have seen the handwriting on the wall and uh, squelched this thing before it developed fully into a beast? And the reason that they didn't is the same reason we haven't dealt with totalitarianism in a forthright way, and that's because it's it's attractive to us. It was attractive to Italian people when Mussolini could make the trains run on time. It, th there are elements of a totalitarian regime that put you to sleep. You could you could say that if there's a clinical diagnosis of the country available to us, the countries become narcoleptic. It, in the in the worst possible moments, it's falling asleep. So this general malaise is is in the streets. If you're a nonfiction writer. Let's say Cy Hirsch writing a series of articles in The New Yorker about right. the tragedies at Abu Ghraib. You can do a first-class job of reporting, as he does, and a nonfiction book can be on the bookshelves in six weeks. Fiction doesn't work like that. In order to, to be a book that a reader wants to become engaged with, it's got to offer something more than the moment. So I think anybody reading this book is going to be thinking about current times and it's a little bit insulting, I think, for me as a writer to give the big nudge in the ribs with the elbow to the reader. The reader's going to get all of that. My job as a writer is to situate our difficulties in the context of the long history of men and women fighting to, to protect themselves, their families, and the people they love from the outrages of totalitarian regimes. You used the phrase narcolepsy a minute ago. Along with the publicity material, we usually get a list of what's called a cheat sheet, which is questions and answers. What I like to do is I look at those and read the answers. I don't care about the questions to see what I can draw out of. And you use another word instead of narcolepsy. You use that word as well, which I want you to talk about in terms not merely of totalitarianism, but also in terms of the media's role in all of this. You use the word inattentiveness on the part of the people. Have you ever seen in slow motion these films of boxers where you see a man who's hit from the left and then hit from the right and the whole face is thrown sideways and then it's thrown in the other direction and sweat and spittle fly off in both directions? For me, that's the image of the way every one of us lives every day being brutalized by um, advertising, for example, one thing and another doesn't, doesn't treat us as human beings. It undermines our dignity. It treats us like people whose worth is going to be measured in how much they can buy, how much they do buy. I use the word inattentive, I think, because we're not paying attention to the things that really threaten us because we're so distracted by the things, we're so beaten up by the things that demand our attention. So a man who's having his face slapped back and forth like that, whose child is sitting ringside, has no time to relate to the child because he's being beaten up by the society or the situation of which he's a part. 
there are relatively few people in the United States who are in a situation where they can pay off the car payment, take care of the children, buy the house, do all these things, take care of their parents, and have the leisure to be paying close attention to what's going on, to read the New York Review of Books, for example, from page one to the end every <clears throat> every time it comes across the doorstep, or all of these other books that are out there now, which actually for me is one sign of hope. There are so many well-written, well-researched, non-fiction books on the bestseller list written by people who are thinking deeply about things from left of center. That, that's a positive sign. But I also think, parenthetically, those books are on the bestseller list because there's such a massive failure of American newspapers and the public media to to address on a consistent basis a reality other than the one being sold by the White House. How do you maintain attentiveness then? I mean, yes, the books have come out and we can see them now, but let's say nine months ago or 10 months ago or a year ago before the books began to hit the shelves, how do you become attentive? And in addition to that, let's suppose the Bush administration wasn't so inept at what they were doing. Well, it'd be scary if they were more, if they were better at doing what they're doing than they are. I have no answer for that. I could tell you that when I come to the Bay Area, I feel a sense of relief because I'm so often in the company of people who are paying attention and who are well-read and thoughtful and savvy about what's going on. Um, and that's a relief uh, to come here from a rural area, the one I live in, in Oregon, where um, people aren't paying as much attention, say, as the average person in the Bay Area does. On the other hand, I often find here in the Bay Area a lack of understanding about the masses of people across the United States who support this president and support these policies. And I say to myself, well, you know, the information is just not reaching them. And then I look at myself, I live in a rural area, and everything I need to know, I believe, to understand what's going on somehow comes to my doorstep. So I think inattentiveness, it's not willful inattention on people's parts. It's just that there is too much that demands their, their focus and their time just to earn, just simply to earn a living, that you don't have the luxury of sitting there and thinking deeply about what's going wrong with the country. And this, for me, brings me face to face with what are my responsibilities as an American writer in a moment like this. I'm not an activist. I'm not a person who's in the streets. I've, I, there are very few times in my life when I could say that I've been at the barricades. But I, I cannot live with myself as a writer in this country and say, in these times, I did nothing. I've, I've got to do something, and it's not good enough just to stand up on a stage and say whatever my political opinions are. I am honor-bound and ethically bound to, to create something in language that is a response to the threat to everyone I love in this country, my family, my friends, the communities I know, the people I know here in the Bay Area, wherever I've been. These are my people, and their support of my work for 30 years means we're depending on you to do something that uses our time as readers well and helps us define what it is that we want to do. Now, many of those men and women are politically active, and they're carrying a fight into the streets in my name. They're protecting me, and I've got to do my part, which is to, to, to make a language and a pattern that helps those people say what they mean. 
Barry Lopez, in that short little interview that I read, you do say that, uh, and this is a quote, it's part of one's responsibility to resist anything that undermines basic enlightenment freedoms, speech, due process, and the right to assemble. That means it's part of each person's responsibility, not merely the writer. Yes. You know, you do this radio show, I write this book, somebody else drives a bus, somebody else is teaching in a classroom, somebody else is raising children, changing diapers. The issue is not which one of us does the most important thing, which is an inane road to go down, but to say that if we go back to Lascaux, for example, to a a Cro-Magnon time 15 or 20,000 years ago, and say, well, what's going on here that's still going on today? And, And the clearest connection is an understanding of how essential community is to human life. So the answer to whatever the predicament is, is rarely going to come from one person. It comes from what the community knows. We we could lose any individual in our community and still be okay. But if some force came that tore the community apart, then we'd be really in trouble. And we're so deep in it in this country that you have to go to so-called third world countries to see that the impact of highly aggressive American capitalism, it's the, the, way, the way it becomes visible is through the destruction of local communities. You see a mother, a father, and a children living in a small village, and this aggressive capitalistic system comes to a country like China, and then all of a sudden you go into the villages, and it's the women and the children living at home, and the men are 300 miles away living in little tiny dormitories spending 15 hours a day making widgets, and and this is sold to them as a way to advance themselves, and it kills the men, it breaks the bonds of of love, it creates confusion in the children, it's no good. Your book deals, as you're talking now, deals with the broad range of places. Uh, So it's not merely resistance here. In fact, in a sense, each of the characters in your book is not part of the United States, though two of them uh, are in American Indian situations. Mm -hmm. We see Paris, Argentina, India, Vietnam, China, Africa, and elsewhere. This is a world problem. It isn't necessarily just the United States, though right now with the proliferation of American culture, it almost seems to be. Well, we're very good at causing trouble and then beating ourselves up and seeing ourselves as the best in the world, if you will, the worst of troublemakers. Um, This is a worldwide problem, and a lot of people who are American citizens have come to their politics by going through a Peace Corps experience or going through a military experience where they had a chance for a while to develop a perspective other than one informed by American pop culture. If I was uh, running a university, you know, I would hope to make a provision where every student, not just those in the arts and and humanities, had a junior year abroad for, for engineers, for people in business colleges and whatnot to take that junior year abroad is to say this knowledge is shared by many cultures and we've worked it out this way. What, how would they work it out in Iran? How would they work it out in Niger? How would they work it out in, in, in Colombia? And to go to those places and speak with those people so a sense of globalization does not, has more than just an economic dimension. It, we get a sense of global warming threatens us all. Uh, industrial pollution threatens us all. The failing supplies of fresh water all over the world threaten us all. And we've got to find common purpose. These testimonials, these nine testimonials, also deal with the relationship between the personal and the political. There's a sense I get that you feel that one has to deal with personal anger 
before one can really change the world. That's interesting. You know, it's in conversations like this that I can look back and say, oh, yeah, I guess that's what I was saying. But I think you're right that that uh, many of these characters uh, deal with personal failure and unfocused anger before they get to this place where they know what they want to do. And uh, I think we all feel this compassion for each other when we see somebody you care about, a good friend, who is so angry they're inarticulate. And our impulse is to say, I wish I could find something that would make this less painful for you and some sort of funnel so that you could focus this anger into a sharp point like a cutting torch and act politically. And that's what these people have managed to do. And the characters in the book actually say that they want to make this book in order that men and women who are still ambivalent about what to do and how to situate themselves will have the inspiration to act. The problem with dealing with the young versus the old is that the young, that anger just churns out anywhere. It's the left eats its young, so to speak. When people get older, they tend to get conservative. So they move away from that completely and lose it all. Well, it is a balance, isn't it? You know, yeah. uh, I, I think that, again, to go back to this issue of community, one of the reasons that community is strengthened by working out its issues in terms of both genders and all ages is that if a community works with time-tested knowledge, then the young people, when the older people say, no, you can't do that, their tendency is not to say, you don't know what you're talking about, I'll do what I want. Their tendency is to say, I know you know what you're talking about. My problem is, why don't I get it? But they go ahead and do those things. So in a traditional village, for example, elders have a, it's an authoritarian situation. It's not a democratic situation. And we're struggling in the United States to give everybody a voice and count the votes. Uh, We're fully willing to count the votes of people who don't know and don't care. In a functioning community, the strength and the, the tremendous energy and, and idealism and the enthusiasm of young people is filtered through a system they trust, which has um, been kept alive by the older people who don't have the energy. And uh, they, they, by working in concert, the elders and the younger people keep that community going. Sounds like then there's some kind of fundamental flaw in the way our system works right now. Well, you know, the thing you have to accept is democracy is an experiment. It's a great idea, and it came out of these beautiful ideas in the Enlightenment about liberty and equality and fraternity, and we're trying to work our way through it. But if you read American history, you have to sit down in your chair and accept two things that are um, make it very, very difficult to say this is a country that works well. One is that All of those Jeffersonian ideas and all of the legal ideas, rid of habeas corpus and all of that sort of thing, in order to work out a civilization like that, we required a continent. And this one was occupied. So Europeans came here, killed everybody, killed a lot of the animals, moved them all out of the way, made a space, and then established a democracy. The the contradiction is, is, is mind paralyzing. And then on top of that, you build an economy on the, on the backs of people who are brought over here from West Africa and treated so badly most of them die. So a, a country that's founded on slavery and genocide is suddenly in the position of preaching a, a democracy it claims is a finished thing 
to other nations in the world. And other nations in the world are saying, no, 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 your problems go as deep as ours do. Would you work with us as companions? Then we maybe will get somewhere. Yet at the same time, we also have a situation where the democracy, as Gary Wills talks about it, is always a th in threat. And to some degree, it's our job, maybe to every degree, to maintain that democracy, however flawed it is. A a absolutely. No, ab absolutely. I think it's an experiment, and the measure of our patriotism is the willingness with which we address the flaws inherent in democracy and make sure that in the promulgation of laws, we don't create more cruelty. Barry Lopez, I'd like to talk a little about some literary things in, in resistance, move away from this for a moment. The second story is very interesting because it begins and about five or six pages into it, we discover that the character is a woman. Mm -hmm. That was deliberate, I guess. That I didn't identify her yeah. as a... I don't know if it was deliberate. I, she's human to me before she's a man or a woman. The narrator is a man or a woman. And I, I, I think when you... When you learn that she's a woman, uh, it just comes at a point where she's more fully formed as a character and it gives her an authority and her points of view about things are established in her humanity rather than in her gender. Uh, and then you can look backward over the first few pages sure. and say, oh, I see why she might have had that kind of take. But I think that there are some experiences in the world that men gravitate toward and others that women gravitate toward. And if we talk to each other about those experiences, then we're, we're informed in a very good way. But it's essential to understand that first we're human. What I found amazing for me is by story number three, I'm thinking first line is I, I was raped when I was five years old. I'm thinking, oh, it's another woman and then it's a man. Yeah. And after that, I begin going, well, I'm not going to know which one it is until Barry Lopez tells me. And, and the way the book got structured is you don't even know the name of the narrator until, in essence, they sign off at the end with, a, with their name and the identification of the projects that brought the wrath of a right-wing government down on them. And then they tell you where they were when they wrote this document, and that's the place that they're leaving so the government won't be able to find them. Were there any conscious reasons why you chose the places you did, Argentina, India, Vietnam, China? specifically? They, they were places I know, and so I felt comfortable in describing them. I mean, I don't go into any great detail. I, I do name some streets and things like that in Buenos Aires. The conscious intention I had was to get away from the, the context of the United States as a sole referent. Um, I wanted to be able to say, as you suggested earlier, the kinds of things I'm talking about in the book that characters elucidate are going on all over the world. And many men and women, I think, who live outside the United States don't think of themselves, who are citizens, don't think of themselves as expatriates. What they think of, uh, of is, I too am a citizen of the United States of America. I do not support what my country is doing in the Middle East, and I want you to see another side of us. And uh, the, these are, you know, I, every time I do a reading, every time I travel somewhere, I meet the most extraordinary people who in that context are completely anonymous. But you'll, you'll run into somebody who's spent, you know, 20 years of their life doing various kinds of work in Nairobi, say. And you, you begin by saying, oh, I was in Nairobi once, and blah, blah, blah. And you say, you know, you have a nice conversation. And then you realize this guy or this woman went real deep 
in that situation. And when he left, he allowed other people to say, you know, I met a very different kind of American, and what I saw in that woman or that man from America is what I know that country stands for. I think whatever credentials we have in foreign countries comes from the selfless work of men and women who are traveling basically on their own and ha are, are men and women of integrity and generosity and all those other things we like to think are part of our country. I keep thinking about the, the great contradiction, which is that America is both the hope and the scourge of the planet. Yeah. Very strange thing. Yeah. And it's important to remember that because if you go to a foreign country and start beating up on America, people will look at you in a strange way. And not only are you strange because you are denouncing your own country, but they look at you as somebody who's selling out instead of saying, I, I am determined to keep alive those things in my country that you love about it. I'm, that's my work. Turning it around the other side, uh, we see a place like France where there's uh, a strong, strong moves to maintain their culture at the same time these same people are buying American products. Mm -hmm. you know, so there's that contradiction as well from the outside looking at America. The appetite that the rest of the world has for American pop culture. I mean, you're saying buying products, but I, but I think where that, where that makes the most sense. What, what other countries buy from us is pop culture. That's they buy, correct, yeah. They buy our fashion, our movies, our books, our, right. our, they buy our jive, you know. So I don't take that very seriously. And, I, and you know, the thing, I've traveled all of my life and I've lived in Oregon for the past 35 years, but, you know, I had a very solid grounding in prep school in New York City, and I see provincialism everywhere I go. Right. You know, and I, I, I sit in New York and listen to people tell stories about California, and I just figuratively roll my eyes thinking, you know, this, I, I'm not even going to open my mouth to, to say, you really don't know what you're talking about. But at the same time, when I'm in California, where, you know, I grew up in the San Fernando right. Valley, and I listen to people talk about New York, and they characterize it in a way that I know is very provincial, what I learned from that is just walk the streets of any strange town and uh, uh, be courteous and uh, uh, right. open to everything that's going on. We're, we're all... We're all scared. We all like to think the home place is the best place, and the other places are terrible. I've heard that in every, on every, literally every continent on the on the planet. I think, as a writer, part of my compassion and my love for my country comes from its confounded diversity. There are these enclaves of people who want the rest of the United States to be just like them. You know, that's falling apart in California. It's mm -hmm. falling apart in uh, you know the whole southern tier of the United States. We. You know, you're looking at a lot of southern Florida has more to do with what's going on in Cuba than it has to do with what's going on in Virginia or Maine or something. Well, I keep thinking about, um, I mentioned France because I'm a Francophile and I don't like the idea of American culture permeating <laughs> and destroying <laughs> France, you know. And it, it bothers me. It really bothers me. Well, think about the, if you're French and now after 9-11 and, and uh, Iraq, Somebody like Chirac seems to be on the left compared to, <laughs> compared to where George Bush is. I mean, that must be quite the mind-bender for people living in France. Barry Lopez, what is the nature of happiness? Good relations, to develop and maintain good relations with everything around you, the people, the place in which you live, the children that pass through your everyday life, and not living a life in pursuit of happiness. I keep thinking uh, when I read Lost Horizon by James Hilton, oh, yes. right, you know, there's a point where the High Lama 
is asked, well, what's important? He said, just be kind. And I thought that was so trite at the time, but maybe it's not. No, it's not. And you know, I've got to tell you something. I'm 59 years old, and not that that counts for anything, but I'm scared now that I am going to repeat in a character's mouth a words like that, be kind, and think that I've just made them up for the moment and forget that 30 years ago I read a book and I was so impressed by that it stuck somewhere in my mind and then it just jumps out on a page. So I've become, as I've grown older, much more sympathetic to people who are accused of copying a line from somebody else's <laughs> book. <laughs> well, that, that does bring, bring up the question of, in light of the fact that there are a number of writers out there in their own way doing resistance. Yes. Probably most novelists do that. There are very few, in fact, who don't, yeah. as I've found as they come through these doors. How do you maintain originality? Oh, I don't think it's hard to be original. It's uh, what makes us seem unoriginal is living in a society that gives us no credit for being who we are. If a person is searching for a voice, they need a good school to go to, and they need a community that will protect them while they find that voice. And, you know, here's an, the irony of a, of a nation that is almost apoplectic in its celebration of the life of Ronald Reagan. One thing that happened during that man's administration is that the downhill drift in American education became precipitous, and the crumbling of our schools, the denigration of teachers, the dismantling of schools, the turning of children into worker forces by forcing them to take all these tests, the, the departure from education and the development of inculcation, that, uh, that's, that started in, uh, that didn't start, but it, but it came into its own during the Reagan administration. Exactly the same thing happened in England. Margaret Thatcher destroyed the schools, the ordinary schools to which most young English people went during, I was about to say, her reign. When we turn around and, and look at that and scratch our heads and say, how can we change this, the situation that we're in, one of the first things my mind goes to is we've got to take care of these children. We've got to build a school system where these young men and women who are struggling for an individual voice and, and demanding of the world around them a right to be original where they can thrive. In a pop culture like ours that's driven by celebrities, there are always going to be people who want to discover the new simply because it's new. But it's not enough to be new. It has to be deep. And I, I don't think there's ever going to be a problem with original minds going deep. It's just it's just an unusual thing to do. And in passing about this, I would say something that's happened to me since last you and I talked is that I had always, without thinking, assumed that diversity was a characteristic of life. If you looked at a living system, you saw diversity and you said, well, diversity is characteristic of life. And in the last couple of years, what I've come to think is that diversity is not a characteristic of life. It's a condition necessary for life. If you do not have oxygen, if you do not have water and protection from solar radiation, you will perish. And it is now my belief that diversity fits into the same pattern. You have to have diversity in order to have life. So the insurance of a variety of opinions in a culture like ours, in a melting pot, so-called melting pot culture like ours, is essential to our health. And when you are taking all of these children and teaching them the same narrow, restricted set 
of principles that really just prepare them to work at McDonald's or something like that. You're not taking care of your children. At the same time, human life does have a tendency to bounce back. That's what they did in China, and yet diversity has come to China anyway. Yes. It's a force that, that can't be put down. You know, all tyrants find that out. Let's go on with that question about diversity, that change that you make. How does that translate, do you think, in your work or in your thinking from where you were before? Because it's subtle. I think that if I look back on 35 years of writing, whatever it is, I, I see a man with the same set of questions that just keeps pushing them through different towns, if you will. Because of my life in Southern California when I was young and, and spending a lot of time in the Mojave Desert and and spending so much time outdoors, I became very comfortable with what, what is called natural history and geography. Those became my metaphors. But as I grew older and went through prep school and then into college, the questions that, that most attracted me were questions about the dignity of human life, a sense of self-worth, the structure of prejudice, which are social and political questions. And when I came to write, I, I didn't feel that uh, I had any, any authority at all to write as a political commentator. What I had to do, I felt, was to examine a situation and do it well enough so that the deep questions emerged and a writer could go home or a reader could go home with them. So a lot of what I'm looking at in a book like Arctic Dreams is what does it mean to lead a dignified life? And in a book like Of Wolves and Men, it is about this animal and our relationships with the animal, but a lot of that book is about the structure of prejudice. How does an animal like this come into our lives and then suddenly is vilified? How does the same language that's used to, to describe the need to destroy wolves fall into place? Exactly the same words are used to talk about Native American people. How, why is this language interchangeable? So what I began to see early on as a writer is that if I looked at certain subjects, I could examine very hot issues without pushing people's buttons um, because they would, they would become immediately polarized if you talked about issues between the Native American and the white community. You can examine those prejudicial structures by talking about the relationship of people to wolves and then, of course, talk about diversity. So where I am now is this is the most overtly political book I've written I don't know if I would write like this again. The work that's in front of me is different from this. But I just came to a point after the travesty in Florida in November of 2000 when the Supreme Court, in effect, appointed the chief executive of the executive branch of government where I thought, we're balanced on a knife blade here, and this is way more dangerous than anything I have I saw even during the Vietnam War in terms of the threat to the structure of federal government. And it just caused me to turn things over in my mind till I eventually discovered this structure. The difference between writing fiction and nonfiction about current events is that in order to really work, fiction has to be reflective. It can't just report. Good nonfiction is good reporting and it can come right on the heels of of whatever the event is in current affairs that, that excites the imagination. In order for a book like Resistance to really work and to, to respectfully engage the range of imaginations that readers have, it's got to reflect on what has been going on 
and connected. I mean, we you can read 1984 or you can read Animal Farm, you could Camus' The Plague or, or Kotzea's uh, Waiting for the Barbarians. I mean, there are dozens of books that you can do, Slaughterhouse-Five. You can read all of these books and say, oh, this isn't really about only this moment. This is about right. something that's been around a long time. And that's where a book like Resistance fits. And one thing I'm interested in now is Resistance is, it seems to me, one of the first fictional responses to what's going on in the country since this administration came to power three years ago. And my hope would be that that audience that doesn't read nonfiction is going to start seeing books by people like DeLillo, for example, that address this current moment, the threat of totalitarianism that's here in ways that will galvanize them before November of 2004. Barry Lopez, you've said that resistance is the natural state of the conscious and the thoughtful. In order to incorporate the energy of individual human beings into high-powered economic and political systems, you've got to get them to behave in a certain way. A person who is thoughtful is going to say, I will make that decision. You won't make that decision for me. And that's what I mean about resistance being the natural reaction today of all women and men who are thoughtful about their lives. And I, I think today that this is a, a frame of mind that's necessary to have in order to make any kind of political decision about the upcoming election or about local politics is to resist these people who say, shut up and do it my way. How do you resist the people who rewrite history as the recent Ronald Reagan experience shows? I don't know if you can do anything about that. You know, so much of public life in the United States today is a media circus. A ray of hope, I think, is the emergence of some people in public life who seem to be able to tell the same story no matter what the audience is. There is a young man in Illinois running for a Senate seat, Obama. His father was born in Kenya and his mother is a white woman from Kansas, I believe. Here is a man who offers the same stump speech, if you will, on the North Shore, the wealthy part of the city of Chicago, and he uses the same speech on the south side of Chicago in those barrios. And people trust him because he's not part of the entertainment industry. He's somebody who seems to have a genuine concern about the fate of all people regardless of their race. So you resist until you see somebody you believe can cover for you while you continue to cover things in your own small world, which is just getting food on the table and the bills paid. Nader may be running. How do we deal with that? I don't know. You know, when the car gets a flat tire, you change the tire uh, or you come up with some silly answer like draft the twins or, you know, <laughs> I I don't know how to deal with the Nader thing. I, I can't really figure it out. You know, my knee-jerk reaction to it is, please, we already went through this and that's why we're in this situation that, you know, this is what happened in Florida. What happens if Bush gets into power again in in November? What do we do? Well, I don't think it's that dire, actually. And the reason I say that is that this is just a guy and this is a country. We weathered the Black Plague. We weathered Tamerlane. Russian people weathered Stalin. The people keep moving through these terrible moments in their time. You could say this man and his cronies are out to change the structure of the federal government and to institute a situation like we would have a caliph, uh, a, a simultaneously a, a, a religious and a civic leader in the White House. 
All of these things are really scary, but we also, thank God, have a legislature. And from what I feel moving around the country these past two months is there are a lot of senatorial races now where the Democrat is favored over the Republican candidate. And what Mr. Bush had you remember when Newt Kindrich and that group came in in the middle of, of Clinton's first term, everybody thought, oh, my God, you know, it's all going to change, and, and it didn't. And I think there's a very good chance that even if Bush is not defeated in 2004, he's not going to have the backup that he has had with regard to Supreme Court appointments, for example, in the new U.S. Senate and in the new U.S. House. That's one thing. And the other is that you can say that the nation has been narcoleptic around some of these issues, but you can feel the awakening. You can hear the alarm clocks going off, and enough of them go off, and this nation will be galvanized around its opposition to this um, phony war in the Middle East. So you're optimistic. I'm not optimistic. I, I would say that my whole life as a writer, I've always been hopeful and never optimistic. And the distinction is important to me. Optimism has to do with a focus in the moment. And hopefulness has to do with an appreciation of history. What has happened to us? Have we survived? The things over which we have no control are much bigger for us now than they've ever been in our history. And I'm, t I'm talking about the, the development of global warming, the way all natural systems have been permeated by all of the detritus that comes out of industrial culture, heavy metals in particular. I'm talking about collapsing supplies of, of fresh water. You know, a country like Libya is going to be eclipsed maybe in our lifetimes because it's pumping fossil water to, to make an economy work that's simply not going to work without the water, and the water is going to be gone. So how we're going to solve those problems, I don't know. We've tried a lot of systems to make it rain more, People are inc incredibly resilient. We're so harassed by this buy-everything-at-any-cost culture that we live in. We're so emotionally abused by advertising that it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking uh, it's all going to go down the tubes. And what I would say is from my experience in Aboriginal villages in North America and Africa and Australia is no, that there is a core group of people who cannot be killed they cannot be shut down. They can't be contained in prisons. They are there. They will always be there, and they are our refuge. Those are the people that, that my hope is staked on. They know what it means to be human. They know about all of the flaws in human life, and they stand for the dignity and endurance of human beings, and with them, somehow, we'll figure a way. When I interviewed Paul Theroux, who had gone through Africa for Dark Star Safari, I, I said, do you see any overriding view covering everything, or maybe that's too big a question, from what he's seen all over the world. And he gave an answer which didn't satisfy me. It made me very unhappy. He said, well, my answer goes back to Levi Strauss. The planet has been here before man, and the planet will be here after man. Yes. Fine, but that's not good enough. Well, I would say if I put on the hat of a biologist, what an evolutionary biologist would say is we're going to find out whether or not consciousness is maladaptive. We're going to find out whether this organism, Homo sapiens, which develops this extraordinary capacity we call consciousness, whether this proves to be its own end or whether it proves to be something that matures 
and and integrates it fully into other living systems. At the moment, we we are ripping apart every living system around ourselves in order to keep this juggernaut going, and that's an end game. I would agree with you. I, you know, what is the point of your life if somebody is saying, you know, the planet was here before you, and then the planet's going to be here after you? Okay, I can accept that, but. Um, I really am rooting for the home team here, you know. I, uh, <laughs> right. I'd, I'd like, I'd like to see something. I'd like to see us work this out, you know. I'd like to be uh, have the sense that human beings are have have discovered a way to use consciousness so that everything around them eventually became a set of good relations. You know, I I love this idea, for example, of the bodhisattva, the the notion that. A person achieves a state of spiritual enlightenment and then instead of, quote, going to heaven, says, I'm not going to go until everybody gets to go, and so I'm going to turn around and minister in the world. I, I don't know. I'm sure that you have met people like that. I've met people sure. like that. And you say, thank God this person is here and they're talking and they're doing their work, this bodhisattva work. I think when you ask me, uh, you know, can we survive if Bush is elected for another four years, and my mind goes immediately to these streets in India where I've, I've, I've walked down the street and seen, in, in somebody, seen somebody who was skin and bones and looked like they didn't possess anything in the world, had no income or nothing, and you look into those eyes and you look into the face of God. And what that person is telling you is you're asking the wrong question. You've been listening to an interview with the late Barry Lopez who died on December 25, 2020, at the age of 75. The interview was recorded while he was on tour for his book, Resistance, the collection of interrelated short stories with the theme of resistance. You can find other Radio Walensky podcasts in the Area 941 section of kpfa.org, or you can go to bookwaves.homestead.com or richardwalensky.com for a complete listing of all digitized recordings. You can subscribe to Radio Walensky via iTunes or follow Richard Walensky Radio Shows on Facebook. You can write to me, Richard Walensky, either at bookwaves at hotmail.com or richard at kpfa.org. Radio Walensky usually posts every week on Sundays. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky. <laughs>